on America Can We Talk. I talk about election integrity, border security, healthcare freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. your tolerance but lecture me is there no end to your own hypocrisy your god is power you have no shame your only interest is political gain you hide your eyes and refuse to listen you play your game. coming up next america can we talk with your host debbie georgiatos and hello and welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. We have a great interview coming your way today, one of our special Thursday shows. I want to thank you for tuning in. Thank you for the studio audience. I have two quick things to say before we start. One is that Hanukkah starts tonight. And I just want to say to all of our Jewish listeners and friends and to all of our friends in Israel, uh, happy Hanukkah. I hope you enjoy the season. Uh, I'm and glad to have you tune in today. The second one is that today is actually the 82nd anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack. And I say this often on my show, but Pearl Harbor, obviously, we're grateful for all the people who fought in World War II. Uh, we're grateful for people who stood up for America, recognized a threat to America. And it was easy to see it as a threat because they're bombing and, and killing people. But the attack on Pearl Harbor um, back at that time woke a lot of America up to the realization that we really had to fight to defend our freedom. We had to stand up because they were coming after us. Eventually, America got into the war and the European front as well uh, and really brought about per peace again to the world. Well, where we are now in 2020, they're not dropping bombs and they're so far not you know doing anything violent but the attack on America's culture institution fabric the very basis of America's freedom is very real in America today and I'll tell you in my last little point on the introduction today last night my husband and I finally managed to figure out how to get a rumble video from our phone to play on our television that was one hassle but which <laughs> which led to we watch Police State. If you have not yet seen Dinesh D'Souza's latest documentary, Police State, cannot recommend it strongly enough. It helps put in perspective many individual uh, issues that have been happening to America and see it in the, as a larger attack on the foundational freedom of America. So I urge you to see that film um, and recognize all, with, all the left really is doing uh, to target America and its unique and extraordinary greatness. Now, my guest today, I'm so grateful and happy to have my guest today in studio is, is the Honorable Linda McMahon. We have a little phone haywire. Sorry about that in the audience. Okay. So uh, my guest joining us in studio today is the Honorable Linda McMahon. Uh, she is a, a very famous American. We're honored and very grateful to have her here today. She served in the Trump administration um, as the uh, head of the so Small Business Administration. She was a small business administrator. Um, and why we're talking to her now, she's also the chairman of the board of the America First Policy Institute, the AFPI. We've talked about AFPI many times on this show. It is really a, a think tank of Trump policy people who are trying to distill down what made the four years of the Trump presidency so great and strong, what the policies were, put them in place, and, and plan for the time again 
when patriotic Americans run this country. So they are a great organization. We'll hear more about um, them in just a moment. But for now, a welcome to the show, the Honorable Linda McMahon. It truly is an honor to have you here. Thank you for making time to come in the studio today. Thanks for having me. This, is, this would be great. What a beautiful studio, too. This is really awesome. It is a beautiful, awesome studio. I could not agree more. I, I'm, I'm, I love it very, very much. Um, so I mentioned that you're chairman of the board of the Center, um, first of all, of America First Policy Institute, and also the Center for the American Worker, AFPI. And I didn't really do a thorough bio background introducing you, but I'll just say a few more things before I turn to our questions. Um, I love that you served in the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. I heard at an event, a recent event where you were speaking, uh, that you've actually known Donald Trump for years. So I kind of want to hear about that because for some reason he just, he, he cracks me up. He makes it in a good way. I mean, he just seems like he's engaging and funny, but we'll get that in a minute. Um, but you are the 25th administrator of the U.S. Small Business Administration. Um, and I love what you focus on there uh, for America, rural development, championing women entrepreneurs and military veterans. I love that. Uh, you're also, as most people know, the co-founder and former CEO of WWE World Wrestling Entertainment, uh, based in Stanford, Connecticut, and you grew that organization from tiny to huge, I'll just say, from 13-person 13, <laughs> 13 to a worldwide organization. Um, and I also love you're known as a longtime advocate for women in leadership and businesses, um, and you recognize as one of the country's top female executives. So I will say, you're very accomplished, very successful. So I will start with, we'll go back in a minute about what Trump, President Trump is like, but why would you agree after all your success and just ability to relax in life, why did you sign on to join the Trump administration? It actually was kind of uh, the, it was kind of a next step of things. Uh, I had been the CEO at WWE for about 30 years, uh, having built the company, you know, grown it from the ground up, my husband and I, and, uh, and, and had accomplished a great deal, I think, in business success and really felt that it was a time to give back. My children were grown. I had the opportunity to do it. And I really then became interested more in public service. So I ran for the Senate, the U.S. Senate in Connecticut twice, back to back. Uh, it's very difficult to run as a Republican uh, in Connecticut. Yeah. Uh, and I lost uh, pretty handily both times. But one of the things that we were able to do when I did run was actually kind of build a party. And, uh, and, and I, I, I know your desires for the Republican National Committee. And, uh, and so I was very helpful with a couple of the people in the state of Connecticut for that as well. So it was, that was a really good, good thing. Well, I so good luck. Oh, thank good you. Good luck with that. <laughs> thank you. And so when I lost, um, I had known uh, uh, Donald Trump for about 25 years. We had done business together, you know, et cetera. And he'd supported me during my Senate campaign. And uh, when he was then the uh, president-elect, uh, he asked me to come down to Trump Tower and have a conversation with him, and uh, so I did. And he, he said, look, he said, I really would like to ask you to serve in the administration and head the Small Business Administration. He said, I have a really novel idea. I'd like somebody who actually built a business. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and knows the rules and the regulations and how hard it is and can really speak to the business community. And he was such an advocate and supporter of small businesses. He understood they were the backbone of the economy. And um, he said, I really would like for you to consider it. Well, it took about a nanosecond to say yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and so I, I think that serving uh, in the cabinet of uh, you know, the president of the United States was probably one of the honors of a lifetime. Gotta be, gotta be. I and mean, it know? was, I gotta tell you though, they were pinchable moments. 
Okay. You know, my yeah. first cabinet meeting, you know, you go in and you're in the big cabinet room and everybody's all sitting around and I'm sitting there and I was kind of just to the right of the elliptical and just about here, mm -hmm. the whole elliptical table. And I'd look over and I would say, wow, that's the, that's the Secretary of State, that's that the is, Secretary yeah. of Defense, it's Vice President of the United States, da, 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 da. and me. Oh my gosh, and me. <laughs> so it was, it was really a pinchable moment, but uh, an incredible experience. I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Oh, it just had to be. And plus, your actual real life experience building WWE from a tiny organization to what it was international. I think I mean, it was 800 employees or something, a, a, big, a big organization. That's what you want. And I mean, I like President Trump's thinking in small business administration, you want someone who believes in business. I'll tell you something else I think about President Trump. You know, it, it always astonished people um, who were on the left. Why does the average Joe relate to this guy so well? How could a guy who's a billionaire, who's built so much in life, but the average, you know, we've used the expression, the Joe lunch pail. I mean, the, the average American said, yeah, I like that guy. <clears throat> and I'm sure you've noticed this. So what do you attribute that to? What do you think? Well, one of the things that, uh, that Donald Trump, the builder, always did, he would go on the sites, you know, where his people were working. In fact, his children talk about how Ivanka and, and Eric and Don Jr. would talk about, he didn't have other children at the time, that they, uh, they would go with him uh, on the sites and how he treated the workers and how he talked to them and how he listened to them. And they, he was always very respectful of the work that they were doing. And uh, so he was there, he was present. He understood working man. And, uh, and <clears throat> excuse me, and what they were going through. And uh, I, I do believe that that gave him the opportunity when he was running to say, you know what, I do want to represent the forgotten men and women and, uh, and, and the small businesses. And, and, and he was, and I'll, I'll be repetitive, he was such an advocate for small businesses. Yes. I flew with him uh, several times um, on Air Force One to go to uh, events that he was having, which he was promoting his tax cut package or his regulatory reform. And he would specifically put me in a certain place in the audience because when he would reference small business, he would always look, he would always look over and he would say, and there's Linda McMahon, she's the administrator of the Small Business Administration. And, and he would say, but Linda, we all know small businesses are really big business. It is the biggest yeah. business in our country. That was a good line. I like yeah. that line. Yeah, yeah. So I love that you did. You took on that, that job, which he offered you, and I love how he thought about business. And really, he also had, we are going to turn to AFPI, because I do want you to be able to tell everyone sure. what AFPI is all about. But Donald Trump, President Trump, also made a lot of people just feel like, because the economy, and especially under the left, the policies were just kind of shift jobs abroad. And so it shifted uh, much of the working America away from America. He made people like, yeah, we can probably be, we can have success again as a, as a country, as a, as a group of small businesses, business owners. He made them feel like America's an engine and, a, and it, it, he just conveyed po a positive message about America. Even without a long spate of specific policies, it was, it was a, a love of America. He just, a love of America and freedom and capitalism and business, he just exuded it. And people said, yeah, I like that guy's thought. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he did it even before he was president. Uh, you know, when he would do television interviews and even when he was, you know, uh, he was this New York rich guy, yeah. but he would come on television and he would really talk about the issues that were part of, you know, uh, every, everyday America and everyday businesses. And he would yeah. talk about how high taxes were and how hard it was, you know, for businesses to start or sustain themselves and how he, uh, and he always talked about China and how they were taking our jobs away. 
and, uh, and how he, he really wanted that to change. He really thought the trade policies were unfair. And this was before he was ever a candidate. So he didn't change his, change his tune about that. Yeah. He woke a lot of people up to things the left had been doing that we weren't really noticing. I mean, I remember <clears throat> when he was first campaigning, he was talking about the southern border. And I actually had the reaction, and I lived in Texas. Why is he talking about that? I mean, I didn't, I think much what the left did to undermine border policy was under the radar. I mean, maybe right along the border you knew, but many people just didn't realize it was an issue until he brought it up and then people started focusing on it. They realized, my gosh, the left, real, the Obama administration really is just letting the border go. And it was, it was not an open announced policy. It was a very undermining thing they did. He woke people up to that. I thought, yeah, he sure did. Yeah, and and uh, and he, he still is that committed to it. He was all through his administration. He's still very committed to it today. Well, that'll be one of many policies. I hope um, next time we have a Republican president can uh, fix that. So I'm going to turn to AFPI, the America okay. First Policy Institute. And you know, I've known Brooke Rollins for years, um, and she, I knew her at TPPF, and you know, all the things she did in Texas. You know, she's just this burst of energy and insight and, and, and just enthusiasm about America and freedom and, and, and specific policy. She just has been a wonderful advocate for those kind of policies. So she's in the White House and finally realizing at the end um, that 2020 that it was not going to work out for his second term, at least then. And so um, this idea of AFPI came along. Now, were you, I know, Brooke Seven, I heard you speak recently she approached you and, and you, you'd not been in the formulation of this whole idea. This was coming out of, of Brooke's world. I don't know, actually, you tell me how to come about. You <laughs> well, tell me. <laughs> well, Brooke was obviously, you know, the national policy director for uh, President Trump. And uh, it had taken her some, some while to be um, lured, if you will, to come to Washington yes. and be there permanently. She's very, very family oriented. If, if you've said you've known Brooke a long time. She has four kids, yep. dotes on them, world revolves around them. It's, it made a huge sacrifice, you know, to come to Washington, actually brought her kids, uh, homeschooled them, did all of that, and then made it work. Uh, and um, so that comes first and foremost to her. But she was, and I, I teased her a little bit. I said, but you're a policy wonk. You're a policy person because she'd been involved in policy all of her life, you know? and. Um, even though we, she teases about the fact that she was an ag major uh, and an Aggie and then went on you know, to law school. This is a very smart woman, incredibly yeah. smart and accomplished woman. And uh, I loved her enthusiasm. We didn't really work one-on-one -on -one so much when she was in the White House and I was in, uh, you know, uh, over at SBA. But um, Brooke really knew that there was so much good policy that was ready to go for the next administration. And when it wasn't gonna happen, uh, she and Larry Kudlow, uh, who was the economic advisor to the president, and uh, I think Robert O'Brien, who was then the uh, international policy, you know, director. Um, they really kind of really got together and said, "We just can't, <clears throat> we can't let this go. This is this body of work is too important. We need to build on it, etc., and uh, and really get ready again uh, four years from from now." So. Um, Brooke called me. I was very flattered uh, and asked me if I would come and talk to her. And uh, and she and Larry, I knew Larry Kudlow incredibly for a long time. In fact, when I ran for the Senate, he wrote my economic policy oh, uh, that I ran. That's pretty great. Yeah. Which, ironically, was exactly what the policy was that <laughs> there was in, in the White House. And so Brooke talked to me and I said, Brooke, I'm, I'm not a policy person. Uh, I, I'm, I'm really not. And she said, you don't have to be a policy person. She said, I really want someone, you know, 
who has, you know, good leadership qualities and, you know, the kind of experience that I brought to the table. And she said, but I assure you, you're going to learn policy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like so a threat. I, <laughs> so I came over and I met with her and I was so impressed with Brooke and what she was <clears throat> trying to do. And Larry Kudlow was there as well that I thought, wow, this is, uh, this is something so important for yeah. our country, uh, not only for now, but to, to build a legacy that, you know, a hundred years from now, we hope uh, that that legacy is, uh, is in place that will benefit uh, generation after generation. Absolutely true. You know, Brooke makes a point all the time that policy, you know, when you have good outcomes with whether it's employment numbers or uh, job numbers or whatever, spending numbers, if you have good outcomes, you really should give credit to the policies because something got you there. And we, everyone watched four years under President Trump. Everything was going better in America. I mean, the left wasn't happy, but everything else was going great in America. And you think, well, gee, if those ideas work, you know, why not continue them? And, and why are there so much opposition to them from some people? In any case, so AFPI gets formed. Uh, you're chairing the board. And the purpose basically is to pull together the policies that worked well under the Trump first term, uh, Trump presidency, and prepare for the future. Is that about right? Are you Correct. And, and, and what we really did was take a lot of those policy pillars, if you will, and establish them as centers uh, at AFPI. So there are about 20 centers, 2022. I think, you know, some of them are a little more um, stood up and, and very active at the moment. Uh, and there were, I think there are eight former cabinet members uh, who were part of the Trump administration that are chairs of those centers. Uh, you know, Rick Perry is uh, the chair of energy, yeah. you know, and we have Kellyanne Conway, you know, chairing you know, the Center for the American Family. We have, we have education. Uh, I chair the Center for the American Worker, which really ties into small businesses and big businesses and how we continue to support and develop the American worker. So all of those different centers, you know, whether it's international defense, it's homeland security, uh, it's taxes, it's the China policy, all of them are really built on, uh, you know, policy pillars. Love that. And so AFPI is, you have the purpose we just talked about, policy initiatives. I actually have a list of all the um, policy centers because they really, you know, it's kind of funny when people run campaigns, it feels people, the average Joe American watches a candidate say, oh yeah, he seems nice. She seems, I don't know if I like him. But you know, that what really is going to make or break their presidency, especially, or even their term as governor, uh, is the outcomes people feel at the end. And so you got to have these strong policies like Brooke advocates to get you there, with, with no matter how popular the president is. I want to turn, if, if I can just interrupt you for absolutely. a second. It's, um, you know, we, we, we often say at FPI, and, uh, and, and I heard Brooke say it first, and I thought, wow, this is just so incredibly true. Policy has to drive politics, not the other way around. You can't decide you want to run, and let me pick up a few <laughs> things, and we'll kind of develop the policy around those. No, no, no. It is the policy that drives it. And it's a lot like what you said, it's the outcomes that show that you had good policy behind it or not. Yeah, I'll tell you something else about policies though. Be before that, our principles or values. I mean, Brooke has always had, uh, and, and President Trump seems to exude, just kind of core principles, a belief in America's foundation and freedom, America's foundation of individual liberty and, and all the things that built America at the beginning, those principles, if, because you could have principles of communism or some, and you could call a bunch and of aren't policies. we experiencing that? Yeah, yes, we are. <laughs> yes, we are. We'll get to that. So, I mean, the, yeah, the, the principles, the, the policies, the outcomes. Okay. But I want, I mentioned before we started, I want to talk about personnel. When I watch what is happening to President Trump, 
and he's being, I guess it's four cases against him now, and he's got a big issue coming up, of course, with this Jack Smith prosecution um, related to January 6th. You know, I think a lot of people, uh, the average Joe citizen says, you know, I don't think if they seem to steal an election in the future, I don't think I'll go protest because they've seen how people were treated. I get worried that people in Washington, even if they love what President Trump is doing, they'd love to support him. I, I mean, I get worried about whether people will, will want to come on board in a cabinet position, a strong position, given the malice of the left and coming after President Trump so harshly. I, I, I fear, I don't want to be fearful, but I mean, you wonder, you have to get really strong-spined people to say, I'm going to go work for that administration anyway, even given the malice of the left. I mean, do, do you get concerned about that? I think there are always going to be some who uh, might be a little reluctant, you know, to step up to the plate at start. But I have to tell you what we're experiencing. There are people just chomping at the bit to get back to work for this country because they've, they, they can't believe what has happened during this pause, if we call it, uh, during, this, during this administration. They are saddened by what they're seeing, angry by what they're seeing, afraid by what they're seeing. And so to, to think that they might have some opportunity to come and be part of a new administration, if it's the Trump administration or another conservative uh, Republican administration, they really do want that opportunity. And, uh, and, and we are, we're constantly talking to those people because we would like to, we'd like to know where that interest is. We'd like to reach out to the people that we really believe would be qualified that the, that the president, if it were President Trump, that he, that he knows or has thought about or has asked that, uh, you know, that either his staff or that we might take a look at and uh, may, you know, kind of do some vetting and all that is incredibly, incredibly important. But there is a, there is a fervor to right this wrong and there is a fervor to get our country back on track. Love hearing that and I actually think that's true in the grassroots too. You do hear, because I do a lot of public speaking, I hear some people just say, you know, uh, America, either America's over, which it is not, or I'm, I'm just stepping back. But you hear more, like you're describing, more people saying, I cannot believe what's happening to our country and I'm going to fight on whatever their issue is. I'm going to fight on, they pick an issue, they pick their lane and they go for it. There is an increased fervor and also recognition a sense we really could lose America or lose it for a period of time as the left continues to grow in power and in, in just antagonism against uh, what our country's founded on. So what are the, the personnel you're looking at? Are you talking about just White House people? Are you talking beyond that in the, in the agencies or how, how far and wide are you looking? Well, it, you know, I wouldn't talk about specific names or, or right. any of that thing. We're, we're looking as, is President Trump always charged? He wants to find the best people for the job. So would any, I believe, uh, president. Uh, that certainly should be their mantra. They want to find the, the best person for the job. It's exactly the attitude I had when I was a CEO at, at World Wrestling Entertainment. Uh, man, woman, uh, wh whatever uh, nationality you know, came through the door, I wanted to make sure I was hiring the best person who had the, the best opportunity to succeed because especially in roles of government, for that success to happen, for the country to be successful, that success has to happen. And so uh, th those are the kind of people you know you look for across the board. Just who's best qualified to do it. Yep, merit, I love that. Just mm -hmm. basic merit, and you gotta love that. Okay, so I love this idea because I do, I know when President Trump first came in in 2016, many commented on it, you know, he hadn't been in Washington, hadn't been an insider, hadn't been a senator, didn't have a deep bench of people he knew 
in the, who were entangled in the political world. So he had to have, I mean, he did try to build a team, but you know, it's a different thing than if you've, you've been on the political path for 20 mm -hmm. years, you've probably got some people in mind as you're running for president who you pull in. So he really, um, he had to pull in people being a, a kind of the new guy in town. So um, I love there's whether it's President Trump or whoever it is in 2024, getting an actual team of people who are committed to the America First agenda, mm -hmm. committed, just committed to preserving this country. I absolutely. love the thought. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I mentioned to you before we started, there's, there have been articles recently. Um, in fact, they were in the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and the New York Times. So if I say those three publications, they're all leftists, so maybe we just ignore them, except all three of them are running articles about the idea that they're very concerned we're heading toward, you know, they can, they can see President Trump is going to win the primary and, and, and obviously then be the nominee, and they're concerned he may win the general. So there's talk about, you know, are we on the path to a Trump, Trump dictatorship? And that's the term they're using. It is so absurd and so silly, but it, it instills fear in people's hearts. I'm just, I mean, not thinking people, but I mean, a lot of people, it instills fear in their hearts. And I'm just, I'm going to do a little bit of my soapbox here. Given what the left is doing to this country and the way Biden has just and his administration have just eviscerated so many of the foundational ideas of America, rule of law and freedom of speech and all the things under attack, they're worried about a Trump dictatorship is so absurd, so absurd. But what it really tells you is they're frightened of him. I'd like your take on Why do you think they're going down this path? Well, um, <laughs> I think they are frightened of him uh, because, I mean, if you have no other record to run on, Clearly, you don't have an economic story to tell. Bidenomics definitely is not working in our country. Uh, if you don't have any foreign policy to stand on, clearly the Biden administration's policies are not working. And there's so much that has gone downhill. We've, we've even though we've, we've seen some employment, you know, coming back, uh, a lot of that is returned to the workplace, you know, uh, since COVID, you know, et cetera. Uh, there are a lot more government jobs, and those numbers are figured into that as well. But if you don't really have a record to run on, what are the things that you that you try to throw out there? You try to scare people. Okay, you put you put Trump back in. Well, he's going to run like a dictator. And you know what I heard the other day? He'll just throw the rules out the window. Somehow he'll get it changed so that it won't just be a four-year term. He'll go for another four-year term, a four-year term after that. There is a thing called the Constitution that we have here in our country. And there are laws, and we abide by them. And uh, he, he, he clearly is a president that respects the laws of the United States. I don't know who said that. But the idea that someone on the national stage is positing that idea that he might just be, you know, declare himself president for the next 16 years. I mean, they are telling you they think the American voters are ignorant, can be easily manipulated into fear. It is so, I, I can't even think of polite words. It is so crazy, so lame, so ridiculous. And yet they... Obviously, someone putting that out there thinks someone's going to be swayed by this. Sure, it'll, it'll show up in some, you know, all of that stuff is designed to get sound bites. So you get that little sound bite, or it's a headline this long, and it appears on social media, or they throw it out there to see how, see if it'll, they make it stick and just have somebody else talk about it. It's just, and, it, and that works sometimes, but uh, not relative to this. I think it's just absurd. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I don't know how much we actually, we barely ever talked to each other before. To be clear about listeners, we barely ever talked to each other before. I don't know what kind of things you like to go into. I, I, I did not watch the debate last night. There was a debate. Um, I, I, 
I don't know, four or five of the Republican candidates are left in the, and, and there was actually a really interesting thing that Vivek, actually, as he said during one debate, Vivek rhymes with cake. That's how he said to say his name, Vivek rhymes with cake. Okay, Vivek Ramaswamy said, uh, went off last night um, in this, uh, this national, you know, his forum about his, uh, I'm gonna get the actual words because I, I text him to myself. I didn't see it either, by the way. Okay, well, you can talk about it. I didn't either. So, <laughs> what does that matter? No. But he actually, he got around to talking about, um, um, okay, I'm going to find it quickly. He got around to, to talking about what happened on January 6th. And I think that has been, um, for President Trump, among the most, I, I would call it a psyop, just, a, just an outrageous lie perpetuated by media and the left and, and is the subject now of his prosecution by Jack Smith. But Ramaswamy said, okay, where is he's, um, okay, what happened? I texted myself earlier. Okay, earlier today, I introduced a speaker at luncheon, uh, a luncheon who was one of the January 6th people. And there was a, but Vivek Ramaswamy had to say was, well, um, you know, there's growing evidence that the uh, January 6th may have been a setup. And I don't, I'm not asking you to opine on that, except to say, I think that is a, a biggest cudgel being used against President Trump right now um, to make people afraid or concerned. And I, I really wish there were more voices bringing out to the public all the reasons to be suspicious about January 6th. I don't know if you're good talking about this topic. Or not. I didn't even ask you ahead of time, but I find it outrageous. That <laughs> well, we I'll, I'll tell you what my thoughts are. Please do. Um, uh, first of all, um, in knowing President Trump, and, and watching what was happening that day and seeing his speech before the marchers were going off to the Capitol. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and he was, he really, really believed in his heart of hearts and the evidence that he had, that he had won the election and he really wanted the election overturned. And he was encouraging, uh, you know, his, his supporters, you know, to, to go peacefully uh, to show their protest to the Capitol. He was not, he was not trying to incite a riot at the Capitol. And it's, uh, it, I'll, I'll tell you one side example. It's a friend of mine who's sitting in the audience. And, uh, and she was there in that march. Mm -hmm. And I was so worried about her from what I was seeing on television. I was frantically calling her, trying to find out, where are you? What's going on? Are you in danger? What's happening? She said, oh, my God. She said, I'm at the Willard Hotel. I was part of the march. She said, what, what's going on? And she turned on the television to see. So that just shows you how it was being blown up in the press. Yep. You know, there were thousands, about 10,000 of those marchers, and it was peaceful. And what was going on, what happened at the Capitol was a travesty, an absolute travesty. If it was a setup and it comes to be proven that members of our uh, government, FBI or others, were part of any of that, yeah. it, it'll be one of the most um, egregious acts Talk about an insurrection. That is an insurrection against Correct. our government if it was programmed, if you will, from the inside. And there could very well be more and more testimony and evidence to come out to show that. Time will tell that. And that investigation, you know, is going on now. Uh, but it was what, what is happening now is that the Democrats are using this as one of their pillars to talk about democracy and uh, that they are on the side of democracy and how could this have happened because they, they are assuming that Donald Trump will be uh, the nominee again. So they're really trying to plant and encourage and develop that story. And it's preposterous. Yes, it is preposterous. So someone texted me that the idea of J6 that uh, Vivek Ramaswamy was saying is 
He's watched many of the videos have been released or even he's had access to them, even if they haven't been released fully. And he says, looks like it may have been an inside job. And I'm, I don't know either. I do know many suspicious events occurred mm -hmm. and, and many suspicious people were present and things that, that, that seem suspicious. But, you know, I'm getting around to saying January 6th, the idea that that event is, is in the mind, I agree with you, is in the mind of the left. It's a way to turn people against President Trump to say, look what he, how he really thinks. It becomes imperative that the agencies who can reveal evidence, can get the tapes out fully, can uh, investigate, uh, get that story out. It is like the American people are being deprived of knowing the truth of that day, and they're being manipulated into saying, because of this farce we've concocted about that day, you know, you better stick with us, we're safe. I just want to hit this other thing. You mentioned the word democracy. You are exactly right. This is an effort. The uh, left is talking about, you know, we believe in democracy. And there was even uh, the guy, um, Snakehead, forget his name. Anyway, the, yeah. <laughs> I know who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, that, and leftist commentator. Um, he was talking about uh, democracy, you know, that there's a great expression about democracy is that, you know, pure democracy is like uh, two wolves and a sheep debating what to have for dinner. <laughs> you know, because the two wolves are going to out, you know, they're going to eat the sheep. And so the, the point of the, um, you know, this, this idea that pure democracy is, is not in America. We, we don't have that in America. We have a republic. We have a democracy with values and principles that we uphold that structure our country. So if the majority of country wanted to vote that women can't vote anymore, it wouldn't take away our right because we have that. that and that democracy mantra is being pummeled against the American people and used against uh, used to push the Democrats and claim they really are the ones who care about us. And I love, I mean, the idea of being a republic is a monumental concept for people to understand. Sure. You want to comment on that at all? Well, well no, I, I just agree with you. Uh, and I, I really do, um, you know, when we think about our democracy and, and all the parts of it, you know, that I bring that are, that are especially part of America, that we do have freedom of speech, you know, and that we do have 50 states you know, that are the laboratories of, of this Republican and really make up that Republic. Uh, and, and that's how our country was designed, I think, brilliantly uh, yeah. by, you know, by, by those who drafted the Constitution and wrote those laws. And, and we are, you know, we are unique in the world in that regard, but we're also a capitalist country. Uh, and so I'm d getting off the point a little bit, but I, think, but I think that what really grows our economy and helps us to be, I think, the most amazing uh, and in unique country uh, in the world and the one that the world wants to emulate. I heard it said one time, you know, when um, when America gets the cold, the rest of the world gets the flu. Yeah. Uh, and so if we look at, you know, what's happening in our economy today, what's happening in the global economy? Okay, we, we know what works. We know the policies. I don't know about you, but I like living in a country that had the number one economy in the world. I thought that was great. I thought it was great to have lower taxes, reduced regulations, and a president who was genuinely involved in building the working class and the middle class of our country. I love that. You know, one thing that President Trump was really good at too, um, he was good at encouraging people to think about the concept of America as that it was important that America is a sovereign nation, that we are not going to defer our policymaking to 
the World Health Organization, United Nations, any other international body. He really was, without going into great policy depth, he just was very good at making the point that we in this country are going to have a sovereign nation and we're not going to defer any aspect of it to the international community. And right now, I'm sure you're aware of um, how the Biden administration has been saying, you know, the World Health Organization, they've signed off on the idea the World Health Organization ought to be defining whether or not there's a pandemic, telling us how we must respond to that pandemic. It's one of those things that the, a core holding on to America, you have to believe in sovereignty. I've always had a sense whether President Trump would use that term or some other term, he got the idea of American sovereignty as vital. And I think that's why he was so defensive of the border. You know, without yes. borders, you don't have a country, you don't have that sovereignty. And he saw it, he saw what was happening. Uh, he determined to stop it. Uh, and, and, you know, when you and just hit on immigration for a minute, you know, we are a country that is the most generous in terms of who we allow in and the numbers that we allow in on an annual basis, on a, on a legal basis, and then also have uh, the opportunities to come in on, on different work visas to do the things that we need and have people come back and forth and, and do the right things. And so that's what we should be. But we should not be overrun at our borders. We shouldn't just be standing back and letting people come through that we can't track, we can't trace. They don't. We don't know where they're from, what they're, um, what what it is that they're going to do when they're in our country. I mean, that's a scary, scary thing. If we had to be afraid of something, that's what we should be afraid of because it's, you know, we hear numbers of how many gotaways there are. It's like four to one the numbers yep. that we're hearing. That we are talking about millions of people who are now in our country that we don't know where they are. And uh, in the, the whole trafficking issue, human trafficking that is going on. And I've been to the border now twice. I've been to McAllen, uh, Texas, and then I also went to Yuma about a month ago. Oh. I think one of the things, and I'm really now digressing, but um, I, think, I think one of the things that, that I learned that I hadn't really thought about so much in terms of the damage to our population for the illegal immigrants who are coming in, who sometimes even through ignorance, Yuma, I'll take that example, Yuma produces, my, I think my numbers are correct, uh, verify them for me if they're not, but uh, during the winter months, about 70% of all of the green leafy veg vegetables that we have in the United States come from Yuma. Wow. And so these vast crops of all of these vegetables, you know, are, are growing and being irrigated. Well, FDA has very strict requirements on food handling and preparation in our country. When these immigrants come across the border and suddenly if they're walking through these fields or picking them or the immigration, they, that is now contaminated. Those crops must be destroyed. Oh my gosh. So farmers lose millions of dollars. We then, in our country, don't have the opportunity to have that produce. Therefore, prices go up for the produce that we can get. And it's, I'd never even thought about that. But that's just something that happens to the local population there. And when I was in Yuma, I also visited um, one of the, the only um, urgent care facility, urgent hospital that's mm -hmm. there. And because they receive federal funding, the person comes through those doors for the emergency care in the hospital. Obviously, the, the person who's worse off must be treated immediately. Sure. So if the population of Yuma, the citizens of Yuma are sitting there, woman's pregnant, whatever, in labor, et cetera. Someone comes through the door, illegal immigrant, has a different problem, they're seen first. So supplies, doctor's time and talent, et cetera, go first and often the citizens of Yuma are then transported to Phoenix or Tucson for their care, which is, you know, 
couple of hours away. Yep. So you sit there and you understand that, that we're not just talking about the, the other obvious things that are happening with illegal immigration, but when you hear about the impact on the local community, I don't have to tell the people in Texas, for heaven's sakes, <laughs> what the impact is of, yep. of, of all of the illegal immigrants coming across the border. Yeah, you know, I had a, a border expert in the show not too long ago who was talking about how uh, a conservative estimate, said he, was that the number of people who come across the southern border who are young military-aged men from China. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the, what he was referring to are people who, these are CCP members. These are mm -hmm. actual people we can trace to the Chinese Communist Party coming across and, and basically dispersing we don't know where into the into hinterland. You know, you do, you start to really, it's not just... What you're describing is it's not just you know harm to crops, harm to people, harm to health care, but it's really allowing an invasion of our country that is unprecedented and it seems to be occurring by permission. And back to Donald Trump, you know, and no one's perfect, including Donald Trump, no one's perfect, but he had in his heart, it was miles my discernment about him, he wanted Americans to feel safe. He wanted Americans to have opportunities for prosperity, for jobs, for a sense of stability and community. And he could see that if you didn't have control of the border, every aspect of American life would be altered, would be not just in the border communities, but all over the country. And the particular aspect of this invasion um, by people apparently affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party, it is an endangering of America that I think is staggering. And when President Trump mentions these things, kinds of things in his speeches, the people are, the, um, they clap a lot for him, but they really clap for this because they're, they're saying finally someone is talking about saving America. I'm, and just, I, I mean, I'm, I, now I'm just rambling. Okay, I have a lot of questions. About, <laughs> you know, a lot of questions. About, well, it's, you, just, it's an amazing topic. Sure, if you, if you think about uh, those uh, uh, members of the Communist Party, young men of military age who are coming in, yes. to what end? Correct. Why are they coming? Okay, are they coming to have better jobs and better life? Maybe. But what? No. We don't know. We don't know. So I think, um, you know, President Trump, uh, in, of course, we have, I work for an institute that's the America First Policy Institute, but his whole mantra is always America First. And I, and I do believe that is the right philosophy to have, regardless of who's president of the United States, it must be America First. Yeah, that's one of my taglines in my uh, one of my campaign literature was I've always I always thought it should be America first, and I don't I, I think we shouldn't have a president who doesn't think that. I mean, of either party, frankly, if your job is to be president of America, yeah, America's interests, citizens, policies, economy, healthcare, uh, everything. Your job is to make sure America's needs and and everything about America protects the American citizens. And you know, Trump made a great speech at the UN one time. He was saying, "Of course, we look for our, and we, in other countries, we expect you to do that too." But what he did in 20, I've, I've, I've talked at endlessly about on my show about his victory in 2016. He woke people up to what the left was doing, including that subconsciously the left had had kind of uh, dampened Americans' belief in America and their perception of what the, the government was subtly doing to them to cause them to disbelieve in America. He just reinvigorated that appreciation for America's greatness in, in very simple terms, very practical very yeah. practical terms. Yeah, think about President Trump and, and, and how he just would simply say, look at our flag. 
I love that flag. Yeah, That's and he hugged symbol, it at that one. The symbol of our country. Yeah. And yet we have people who, yes, exercise their, their, their First Amendment rights, which I wholly support that we can do that, but who take a knee uh, instead of standing for our flag, yep. who burn the flag, uh, who, who, you know, who desecrate the flag, the symbol of our country. And, uh, and that is something that he just did, did not stand for. But it was as simple as that to say, look at that beautiful flag. I love that flag. Yeah. Do you remember the one debate where, I don't know what it was, speech where he hugged the flag and the flag was standing? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That was a priceless picture. Mm. It's so symbolic. Um, you know, it's funny. We talked earlier about how people on the left are just, you know, they're not hysterical about any of the other Republican candidates for the presidency, only Trump. They're just, they're after him night and day. And this effort to take him off the ballot, I'm sure you followed this, effort mm -hmm. to take him off the ballot in 2024, and I actually have uh, data on that, but they have basically failed. I mean, every effort thus far, um, they have ended up with um, not winning the day. And um, I, I, I think what happens actually in the minds of many Americans is they start to ask, why are all these leftists so afraid of Trump? I mean, because there's nobody else they're doing this to. And um, I don't know if you follow this very closely. There's six cases where someone tried to remove, this is a 14th Amendment argument that he shouldn't be able to serve because he incited an insurrection when actually it's the left that incited this problem on January 6th, not him, so maybe. The, in any case, um, the, the courts have not, had not given them any safe harbor, any, any encouragement at all. So the courts are saying now you actually can't kick him off the ballot just because you don't like him, which I think is really what they were trying to do. Um, and clearly they are afraid that he uh, is going to be the nominee and, and that he is going to win. And I think when you're like 50 points ahead in the poll this particular time, it, yeah. it, it may sort of be the case. That's a sign. Yeah, it's a sign. Okay, so tell me, back to AFPI for a second. What would you say are your top three priorities if you can get, you know, of all the things you're trying, top three priorities for AFPI? What you well, say? well, first of all, we are really focused and keep, keep our eye on the prize for next year. Even though AF, uh, AFPI is not a political organization, it is a 501c3 and we develop policy. But what is that good policy that we need to write, that we need to help candidates have, uh, that, that they can speak to, uh, so that they are expressing the will of the, the people of the country? So to do that and get those messages into in that policy into the hands of our candidates uh, so that they can win. We, we really want to win in 2024. We really want to be prepared to govern in 2025. Those are kind of two of the top principles right now. To win in 2024, keep your eye on the prize, and then be prepared to govern in 2025, which is a little bit what we talked about earlier, and having uh, the structure set up and, uh, and, and, and having cabinet members be able to move in and, and do their job and be prepared for it from the beginning and have policy ready to go and have executive orders ready to go for the president to sign, whomever that president may be, um, yeah. for so a conservative president. Yeah, so hit the ground running, everything ready. And I did not realize this, so the policies you're developing, at some point a candidate for Congress or the Senate could, could potentially have access to what your research oh, is, is that correct? Not potentially, we send it to them. Okay. Uh, we will help them with their research. We ask them what their issues are. We will help them. We will help with that research and provide that research for them. We will go and sit and talk with their staff members and say, how can we help you? What are we missing? Here is some of our research. Here's what we're finding uh, to so that you know, they don't have time to do all of that.
yeah. uh, and to get prepared. So that's part of the job of, of really developing this policy is to do it with that in mind, what is best for the country. I love that. I actually did not realize, I knew that you were working on policies in Washington, and I assume kind of for the federal agencies, perhaps, mm -hmm. helping them with, but for that's actually wonderful for the candidates, yeah, and, too. It, uh, and, and I'll just, uh, if I may, for just another second, and some of the, the things that we're working on at AFPI, for instance, we go into the states and help the states with projects they're working on, uh, how, to, how to be part of your school board. We developed a, a, a toolkit. Uh, that we just distributed. It's, it's online that you can look at it if you want to affect things in your school board and take back your children's education and be part of the curriculum. Here are the steps. Here's how you do it. So we go into the states. What's pertinent for that state? We've researched all of the school boards, any of the particular rules and regulations that they need to know so that it is actually looked at for, for their particular state. And so we are in the states where we've now set up five state chapters and eventually uh, we'll have a, an AFPI chapter in every state to help, uh, you know, to help focus on that. We, we go in and help state legislators with issues uh, that they're working on and help provide them with research so that they can take it uh, into their state house. So um, it's developing policy on the state level as well as on the federal level. That's a lot I didn't know. I actually, Brooke made some mention recently about being in, in several states. So the states are really good. They're set up so they're just focused on policies in their states, but the broader kind of policies coming down from you all that have, that have addressed various issues. Yeah, we do, we do both. We do both. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, mm -hmm. really, I, I think that's wonderful. Okay, um, and you know, you since you were a small business person, back to this, and we do offer our audience a chance to ask questions. We have a microphone out there, but... Uh, when you, while you were serving in the small business, I meant to ask you this much earlier, but COVID was a huge issue, of course, harming wow. small businesses. I mean, that seems like something, and well, in my view, the government's reaction to COVID hurt small businesses almost more than COVID itself, the shutting down, all the limitations that the government put in place. So are we back on track in terms of small businesses, the harm that came from COVID, or are they still, are they still fighting their way back to where they were? What's your they're they're re recovering. Uh, they are recovering. Some of them have recovered well, uh, and some of them just went out of business not to come back in business yeah. again ever. Uh, and so that was really hurtful and harmful to many, many families. I do think that the, um, uh, the PPP that was uh, put forth and got distributed and helped uh, uh, you know, many small businesses in spite of it not being perfect, uh, you know, to and some people getting it that shouldn't have gotten all of those kinds of things. By and large, the billions of dollars that went out to really save small businesses. And I had, I, wa I wasn't at SBA at the time. I had left to to go and run uh, the president's super PAC for re-election. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I was not part of that uh, distribution uh, at that particular time. But people would still call me and say, I just want to let you know. I know you're not at SBA, but I, it, this, this saved my business. Uh, without this, you know, I'd never been able to have stayed afloat. And so I do know that it was helpful in so many ways. I love that. And I know you have, I have your policy centers all lined up in here, but one you have is election integrity. I know we don't have a lot of time left, so we can't go into great detail. But to me, if people ask me the two issues that will change everything in America, it's border and election integrity. If many of the things you can fix, I mean, they all matter. But if you lose the border, you've lost the country. And if you have elections you can't rely on, 
you don't have representative government. You don't have we the people. So election integrity, do you have a bunch of initiatives ready to roll on that? Well, we do. We're, we've already been on the ground working at those, establishing our field offices uh, to make sure that we are training poll watchers, that everyone knows what the rules and the laws and the regulations are. We kind of had a test run uh, in 2022 and then yeah. just passed elections again uh, in November uh, in, in for this year. Uh, we were able to see, okay, here's still some things that we are missing. Uh, how do we get out? How do we do our door knocking? How do we do digital door knocking? How are we getting our messages out uh, in those uh, places where it is uh, early voting, making sure that the, the applications for, uh, for uh, ballots uh, go out and that they're tracked and that they are received back in the registrar's office. We're doing all of those things and working on those now so that we are fully up and running and prepared um, when voting starts next year. Yeah, I do love that. And, and we are, if you have a question, we're going to um, give him the signal on the microphone just about two seconds. Except I want to say on election integrity, you know, in the perfect world, if I could be in charge of every state, I would love to have, me personally, love to have election day only voting, no early voting, you know, in person. I mean, I, except with rare exceptions of people who are serving the country or something. Um, and that may be a long way off, you know, the, the kind of things. And even I'd love to go back to paper ballots, which I know people have varying views on whether it's, it's doable or not. But I think election integrity, and I love that you're focusing on that, it is a thing, it isn't just that it shapes, you know, whether we have consent of the government, whether we have, uh, you know, representative government, but also it shapes people's willingness to participate in the whole process. If they feel like, and I, I share uh, President Trump's view, I think the election in 2020 was stolen. I've had numerous experts on the show and just you know, poured out the data, which if you actually pay attention to it, you, you can't really sh you know, say, oh no, it looks like it was all on the up and up. It wasn't, it wasn't. And so I feel like that just disheartens people almost more than anything, election integrity. It just, you know, you know, what's the point of all the, because if you don't have election integrity, why knock on doors? Why, why do anything? Sure. Yeah. And, uh, and we can't, we can't lose sight of the fact that this is, that's one of the greatest freedoms in our democracy is yes. to vote and for a representative government. So we must, uh, we must help the voting public understand that their vote counts and that they're not going to be cheated out of their vote. And so we're working very hard to do that. Love that. Okay, so we have a Q&A possible, and we have a hand up right there, and I always give the reminder, talk right in the microphone, not just for the room, but for going out online. Good afternoon. Um, I wanted to ask about, in the campaign trail for the next 11 months, how do you, how do you think President Trump is going to approach the never-Trumper syndrome? Well, uh, uh, I'll have to answer that uh, from a personal basis and not as the chair of AFPI, uh, because AFPI is a, a 501c3, but from a personal basis, uh, I think he will, uh, I think, you know, he's just not hung up on it. He's just not hung up on the Never Trumper. He's, he's really focused uh, on, on those people that are, are really going to be supportive of him and who understand what it is that he's trying to do. He clearly doesn't waver you know, from the policies that he believes to be correct. And he hopes that everyone will come on board because, you know, when he ran the first time, he was just talking about what he was going to do. He got in office and he proved what he could do. He did bring down taxes. He did reduce regulation. We did have no wars that were going on. Uh, we weren't sending, uh, you know, men and women to fight in the wars. Our economy was the best in the world. 
So I think his thoughts are, take a look at what I did. I'll do it again and I'll do it better and hope you'll get on board the train. But if you don't, here's what you got. <laughs> and you can Look see where we that. are now. Yeah. Okay, I was going to throw, I, we can have another question, but I'll throw in one thing I meant to mention to you. Maybe my favorite all-time moment of the Trump presidency, it was one of his State of the Union messages, and he looked right at Bernie Sanders and said, in America will never be a socialist nation. I mean, the cameras went to Bernie Sanders. There's something about the boldness of saying that, because I think part of the decline of America over 20 plus years has been this kind of delegitimization of freedom and capitalism and the notion that to be really intellectually you know, uh, enlightened, you have to entertain, well, socialism is kind of good and communism is okay and capitalism is just another way to do things. The boldness with which he said that, I just loved it. And Bernie Sanders you know, fumed and couldn't do a thing about it. There's something about the boldness of saying simple truths like he did, which made people love him. Okay. I can only got off my chest. Any other questions? Oh, come on, you people. <laughs> you don't have to. I don't want to make you feel like... So, well, thank you guys for everything that you're doing. Um, you know, as you get to 2025 and figuring out how to govern, right, we have a mess in Washington, right? So what are some of the biggest challenges that you're facing? And how do we get away from so many executive orders and getting, you know, our, our Congress to help govern for us? Uh, well, let's let's look at the second part first. I think there I think there are a lot of things that can and should be done by executive order because it just cuts through a lot of things, and you can really move uh, some some things that aren't so overbearing, if you will, forward. And uh, when President Trump first took office, he signed on day one one executive order. Uh, Joe Biden signed 19. They were ready with more executive orders uh, for Joe Biden. Um, part of what AFPI is working on now is that we currently have almost 100 executive orders drafted. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, give you an example of a good executive order, an executive order that uh, President Trump signed uh, that, I, that I was involved in the implement, implementation of was on apprenticeships, uh, that, that companies should be involved in apprenticeships and bring people in and, and help them. And he brought companies uh, CEOs from all over the country and had them in a boardroom and we all sat down and we talked about the kind of programs that they would have. By executive order, uh, he, he made that happen. Well, that didn't have to be Congress coming in and having it go through all the steps for that. That was something that was needed. So I approve of having those kind of executive orders to move things along, not to take the art of legislation and the requirement of legislation away from Congress. That should not happen. Uh, I think I forgot the first part of the question. I got so involved in that one. <laughs> no, just that there's 2025. So, you know, what do we do in, in 2025? We have good policies in place. I do think that that's really going to be important or a good policy ready to go. For instance, I do believe that the, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act should be made permanent. Uh, that, that really did add to our economy. And already some of it is expiring, which is really impacting small businesses. Uh, there's a, you know, one provision was that if, and it didn't just relate to small businesses, but this is one of the, one of the things that was part of the bill, is that um, if you bought a piece of equipment for your small business in the year in which you bought it, you could write the whole thing off. You could take a deduction for that. Well, part of that's already expired this year, and it'll expire a little bit more next year and the next year until you, know, you, you don't have that provision anymore. That really harmed small businesses and, um, and businesses that were ready to go and grow. And uh, so that it took that ability, you know, for them away. And 
I never without fail, when I was uh, the administrator for the Small Business Administration, talked to a small business owner and asked them what were their feelings about tax reduction or what would they do uh, with that tax savings. And without fail, they said they'd reinvest it in their company. They'd hire more people. They'd buy more equipment. Uh, they would do the things that they needed to do and proved to be true. Our economy just really was flourishing. That actually, I'm glad you asked that question. And on this point, that was one of the other themes that I was reading about people talking about, you know, this impending the, the election coming up and possible switch over to uh, back to Republican control of the White House was, you know, the left has done so many executive orders under Biden and they are, to, to my view, they are, many of them are inappropriate. They are uh, not based on sound policy. And honestly, if there were executive orders in day one that just said, we're reversing the following list of 17 executive orders or more than that, that came out of the Biden administration, I think that would be more than legitimate. It's undoing what they were doing. You can do that. Oh, and I, I hope we are thinking about that. I mean, I mean, literally the, the orders that relate to kids in public schools and uh, all sorts of the, um, I can't get off in detail about time here, but the curriculum, public schools, the way they force certain things. I just love the idea of, it's a clean slate, uh, getting rid of the garbage uh, of right. the last administration and just saying, we're gonna turn back to being America um, and, and being a productive engine of America. And it may seem like a lot of executive orders, but I think the, the concept of getting America back on track, uh, people are dying to have that happen. That they, they, they can't wait to have it happen. Linda McMahon, I can't tell you how much fun this was. So thank you for taking thank time you. to join me today. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for letting me just riff sometimes too. <laughs> well, I think I did that too, so we were good, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in to America Can We Talk. Uh, next week, we from today, we have Sydney Powell in studio. She's uh, an amazing lawyer. You know a lot about her. She's been on the show before. Um, I'm bringing you up to date on a lot of good things she's doing. Uh, Sid Miller, uh, the following week, is our Texas Ag Commissioner. Great defender of Texas, of freedom, of good use of farmland. He's a great guy. Uh, and then uh, the week after Christmas, that Thursday, is John Leake. This is a little bit of a not political topic. It might be my first time ever in 10 years doing this show. This is really not political, but he's a great thinker. He wrote a book, uh, The Meaning of Malice, but he's written many books, including he writes books with Dr. Peter McCullough. We'll talk about those books too, but that's John Leake uh, last week um, in December. So as I say at the close of every show, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. This is America Can We Talk. Everything I've ever done, every show, every blog is available at our website, americacanwetalk.org. I do this show to speak truth about America because America matters. I thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Can you America, can we talk truth about America? Can you hear